Some of us are dealing with sleepiness this morning, myself included. I promised Paige I'd say something controversial at the beginning to wake everybody up. So if you can see, the title for this morning is Getting Pentecostal. Is that controversial enough for you, Paige? We will be looking at Pentecost, uh, at least part of it, not Peter's sermon, but the, the beginning 13 verses of chapter 2 of Acts, if you'll turn over there. And we'll pray and then um, see what God's Word has to say to us. Father, will you please this morning give us grace abundant and free uh, through your Word and through the sacrament, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you to apply your holy truth to our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And dividing, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and Cappadocia, Pontius and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Amen. This is God's word. <clears throat> There are some events that change the world forever. Um, in my lifetime, I think of two, uh, 9-11 and COVID-19. And uh, there's a young man I work with who wasn't even born when 9-11 happened. I don't know, Evan, were you, how old were you? I Okay, yeah. So, I mean, some of these younger people will not remember or don't, don't, never lived through that. Um, so for them, the new normal is just normal, right? I mean, my kids, the, the new normal, whatever that is after COVID-19 will just be normal. Um, and so as a society, as educators, as parents and grandparents, it's, it's good for us to educate young people on how life got the way that it is. Um, what is the positive and negative fallout? Uh, how did the events that preceded uh, my life radically impact my, my life, my day-to-day, even though 
I may take them for granted. Pentecost was a day that changed the world forever. Uh, as new covenant, spirit and dwelt, completed canon receiving Christians, the new normal is just normal. And we have to be reminded sometimes, uh, how did it get this way? So now this morning, uh, it is to our benefit that we go back and look at what our brother and father in the faith, Luke, wrote down for us about Pentecost so that we better understand our own place in the world after Pentecost. So in this passage, there there is a lot of meat to chew. And uh, I have to just give up on the whole idea that somehow I'm going to give a comprehensive overview of the passage. But, uh, I, you know, I could pause and, and pick up some of the more controversial discussions about spiritual baptism or uh, um, tongues. I, I could pause and give a detailed explanation of, of all the historical facts. Um, there's so many things to look at. But I think for my focus on this message this morning, it's going to be the big picture. What is Pentecost and why does it matter for us? How is this world-changing event still affecting our lives today? And I've come up with three answers to the question, what is Pentecost? Um, so the first one, first answer is, Pentecost is a day that was given to us as Christians by our King. It was a day given to us by our King. We might say Christians have hijacked Pentecost from the Jews, um, or they might say that. Um, in this valley, Christians have a weird fascination. Maybe it's broader than the valley, but I don't. I encountered it here more than anywhere else. A weird fascination with celebrating Jewish holidays as Christians. Um, and the reality is, Passover changed, uh, Pentecost changed in the New Covenant. They're, they're different things now, and they're Christian holidays, if you will, or Christian days. And they are no, no longer belong to the Jews uh, properly. And we have to remember, Judaism was a religion once alive and, and vibrant with, with faith and hope in the Messiah. And when they rejected the Messiah, that religion died. Pentecost was 50 days after the first Sabbath after Passover. Uh, it's called in the Bible also the Feast of Weeks. Or the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Harvest. Uh, a week of weeks is 49 days, 7 times 7. So the day after that's completed is the 50th day. Um, and it was a day of offering the first fruits of the wheat harvest to the Lord. Uh, it also seems that over time in Jewish tradition, it, it be, they started to celebrate the Noahic covenant and, and the giving of the law at Sinai at Pentecost as well. Uh, commentator Daryl Bach points out that Luke doesn't really seem to draw an intentional connection between sort of the history of Pentecost in, in Judaism and the reality of what he perceives it to be now. He, what's significant to Luke is that this day is about the Messianic reign. Uh, we'll see that clearly in, in Peter's sermon in the coming weeks. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, on a day in which the Jews were celebrating the establishment of the Sinai Covenant, the New Covenant really came into full swing. The, the day they were looking back on the giving of the law, the law began to be written on hearts. 
Jay Packer comments. He, uh, he says, we should not see the essence of this epoch making event in the tornado sound, the sight of human tongues of fire over each person's head and the gift of language. These were secondary matters that we might call the trimmings. This is what he says, how we should see Pentecost. He says, we should see the essence of it rather in the fact that at nine o'clock that morning, the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry began. That's when the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry began. Giving each disciple a clear understanding of Jesus' place in God's plan, a robust sense of identity and authority as Jesus' person in this world, and an unlimited boldness in proclaiming Jesus' power from his throne. So the new covenant was signified at the Lord's Supper. Uh, it was established or cut and ratified at the cross. Uh, it was confirmed at the resurrection. And, but here at Pentecost is when, when it really gets into full swing. This is the promise of the Old Testament, that when the Spirit would come, the, the new age would begin. The new, new, new season would, would, be, would begin um, so when we think back as, as Christians 2,000 plus years later on Pentecost and ponder its significance for our lives, we should remember that we have been made members of this new covenant. That, that's significant. We're, we're members of the new covenant now. And this, unlike the old covenant, unlike the Sinai covenant, is an unbreakable and unshakable covenant. They, they broke the covenant at Sinai. But this is a covenant we cannot break and of course, God would never break a covenant. And it is a covenant that is far superior uh, to the covenant made with the people at Sinai. So if you would turn over to Hebrews 8, we'll look at this new covenant and its superiority together. Hebrews 8, 5 through um, 13, we'll read. <clears throat> but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, or than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Um, so, just a reminder here, pause and say, the old covenant is not the Old Testament <laughs> But the covenant made at Sinai, the covenant with Abraham is an eternal covenant. Um, the covenant of grace is an e eternal covenant. When he says old covenant here, he's talking about the Sinai covenant. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And all this quote here is from Jeremiah 31. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That is the promise from Jeremiah 31, quoted here in Hebrews 8, of the new covenant. And we have to realize that it's not just a covenant made with Israel, but in fact, uh, it, it is a global and international covenant. And that's part of what makes it better. We, who are all dirty, filthy, worldly, once far off Gentiles, have been brought near. That, that's part of the glory of the new covenant. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That promise is for Gentile Ephesians, Gentile Americans as much as it is for anybody else. Michael was pointing out this week to me, which I hadn't realized, but that the Cold War really brought out uh, the push for both the Internet and the space race. How many thousands of ways have the Internet and the space race changed our lives now? I mean, some bad, but also lots of good. We live in this age, the computer age, an age also as a result of the space race in part, um, advances in technology and material science and space travel. Um, as Christians, our age, our era, is the era of the new covenant. It is the post-Pentecost new covenant era. And it is at Pentecost that God, the author of history, kicked it all off. It's the day that the promised Spirit came, bringing the fullness of the new covenant age into full swing. So it is the beginning of, of our age, the in, age we live in. The second answer to the question, what is Pentecost, is that Pentecost is the day that our King proved his coronation or his kingship. Pentecost is the day our king proved his coronation. Jesus told his disciples in John, I go away, but it's better that I go away because the helper will come. He promised them the helper. He commanded then his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what would we make of Jesus' kingship if the Holy Spirit never arrives. This huckster floated into the sky, right? If the Holy Spirit never arrived, it would be false. Sinclair Ferguson says that Pentecost is the visible manifestation of a coronation. The events of the day of Pentecost are the public expression of the hidden reality that Christ has been exalted as the Lord of glory and that his messianic request for the Spirit, made as mediator on our behalf, has been granted. So because Pentecost happens, we, happen, we, we have full assurance that his promise, I will be with you to the end of the age, is for real. It is sound. 
And we can, we can say with confidence, this, this whole thing is really happening. You know, the, the Jews who waited in anticipation for the son of David to come and sit on his throne, that's happening. The kingdom advancing is happening. All because the Holy Spirit came. We can know that for certain. I think we want, I, I know I do, I'm a person like, that likes feedback, immediate feedback. Uh, we want feedback as proof that the kingdom of God is real. And at times we can be kind of like a functional atheist, you know. Give me proof or I don't believe. Similarly though, <laughs> if not verbally and openly, but in the frustrated and darker moments of our own hearts, the, the kingdom must match up to my ideals or the king's not really ruling. The kingdom's not really here. If you grew up in my generation, you'll be very familiar with the, the band Switchfoot or their, their singer John Foreman, um, and you'll have certain nostalgia about that band. But John Foreman just released a new album and one of the songs is called Jesus, I Have My Doubts. Some of the lyrics here. Jesus, what a week we've had. Jesus, has the world gone mad? Jesus, feels like the world's in pieces. I'm sure you've got your reasons, but I've got my doubts. Jesus, I've got my doubts. Um, it's an album written in 2020. Uh, I know the person and, and what the things they're interested in generally more focused on social issues. So I think that probably his frustrations are about COVID and about the racial and political tensions. Um, but I appreciate the honesty, you know, who hasn't felt that way? Habakkuk felt that way. None of us maintains a perfect doubtless faith, um, but we do. And this is important. If, if all that we're looking at is, is, the events of 2020, we're going to be feeble in our faith, but we do have a grounding that's much more sure than, than the things going on in our lives or in the world at large. Um, history is set in granite. All these other things are, are moving targets, but history can't change. It's happened. The Christian faith is a faith set in historical events. The Incarnation, the Cross, Pentecost. So whatever doubts or misgivings we may have about the world not lining up with our ideals, we know for a fact that Jesus, the King, took his seat on the mediatorial throne because the Holy Spirit came in history at Pentecost. We know he's ruling and reigning. Christ's kingdom is advancing no matter our feelings. Amen. The third answer to the question, uh, what is Pentecost, is that Pentecost is the day our king laid the foundation. The day our king laid the foundation. So, first off, in the passage, we see that it begins with a theophany, or a visible manifestation of God. Here, it's in the form of a mighty rushing wind. Loud enough, it says in verse 6, to actually draw a crowd. So, it's not like some sort of private... This was a big windstorm that came into this room. So wind and fire, and God's presence is often marked by wind and fire. You know, Mount Sinai, we think of the storm and the lightning and fire on the mountain, or the burning bush to Moses, um, the confrontation of Job in, in the 
tornado, pillar of fire by day with the people, um, Isaiah's calling the temple being filled with smoke. So these theophanies, these these manifestations of God, often mark out <laughs> specific stages or, or transitions in redemptive history. Again, that's what's going on here. I'm grateful to uh, G.K. Beale for his thoughts on this passage. He's pointed out, and this was helpful to me, that we know from the Bible that the people of God now in the New Covenant era are the temple of God. <coughs> no longer is the temple a physical uh, location, an architectural structure. It is God dwelling among men. Second Corinthians 6.16 For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. The temple is the place where God may be found. Uh, it's the, the, the fountainhead of revelation. It's the place where he is worshipped. And at some point there was a shift from a temporal, uh, tangible, local temple to a spiritual one that, that is the people of God. And, and of course Jesus is the fullest fulfillment of the temple. God taking up residence with man. Um, but through our union with Christ, we too are, are becoming and being formed into the temple of God. Ephesians 2, uh, 19-22. And pay attention here, because I think that this could serve as the summary of the whole book of Acts, really. Uh, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to Gentiles, to Ephesians, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. We're becoming the temple of God. So again, it is fairly obvious from Scripture uh, that that we are the temple of God. But what Beale asks, and what really helped me, was asking when did this shift actually take place? He argues it's here at Pentecost when the Theophany came to the people of God. Uh, he argues in, in his book admirably that um, what he says is God's heavenly tabernacling and theonophic uh, presence began to descend on his people at Pentecost in the form of the Spirit, thus extending the heavenly temple down to earth and building it by including his people in it. I think he's right about that. And this isn't the time and place to dive headlong into his argument, but the point is Pentecost is the day that uh, Ephesians 2, 19-22 began to happen. That he began building together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, the people, the temple. Now we see already here in Pentecost, at the, at the very beginning, the global nature of this household of God. The commission 
would begin in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Uh, but, but the gift of tongues here shows us two things. The, the kingdom of God would advance vocally as a message, and it would be global because there's so many tongues. So even here at the very beginning in Jerusalem, we see the global nature of the building of the temple of God. Calvin points out that, that, that God didn't need a, a wind or fire to do all this stuff. These signs are for, for them and for us. But the substance of the promise of the Spirit coming in power was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the enabling of, of efficacious proclamation of the gospel. The, the fiery tongues were a sign for them and for us, a sign indicating the verbal and spirit-empowered nature of the Christian calling. The, the dispersion of the Jews or the diaspora um, meant that there's Jewish communities all over the, the Mediterranean basin and, and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but in God's providence and wisdom, Pentecost was a, uh, it was a pilgrimage holiday. It brought people into Jerusalem from all of these places. Luke, Luke even seems to see it as, that's, that's the world. I mean, the Mediterranean basin and the Arabian Peninsula. He says um, that every nation under heaven had, had descended on Jerusalem. But the Spirit gave the disciples utterance so that all these people from all these places could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, proselytes, Gentile converts to Judaism, and Jews from all of these nations were astonished to hear the mighty works of God being told in their own language. Some have suggested uh, that the gift here was actually hearing, not speaking, that it was a gift of hearing, um, that either the Galatian or Galilean spoke their own native tongue or some kind of angelic tongue, and then, then all the, the people from the nations heard in their own language. Um, but that's a stretch, considering that the tongues of fire rested on the disciples. They were given this linguistic gift. They, they received the gift, not the, the people. And that verse 11 says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So it was a gift of, of speech, of tongues, not of hearing. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on the question of tongues, um, because honestly, it's pretty straightforward in Acts. When you get into 1 Corinthians is when you start to get confused. Um, but if, if, you know, I'll address the topic topically from the pulpit if, if there's interest sometime. But in brief, I'll just say I'm more and more convinced that tongues here and in 1 Corinthians are known languages um, spoken for, for the same reason, for the advance of the gospel. Um, and if that's true, that they were known languages, what is called tongues today or glossolalia, which is false because that means languages. <laughs> but what's called tongues today, like ecstatic utterance, um, is not tongues in the biblical sense. And in that case, I think what they are actually is a, a psychological phenomenon. I mean, the human brain is a powerful thing. Um, or simply a free-form verbal expression of emotion. J.I. Packer 
says that it is rather a willed and welcomed vocal event in which a context of attention to religious realities, the tongue operates within one's mood, but apart from one's mind, in a way comparable to the fantasy languages of children, the scat singing of the late Louis Armstrong, yodeling in the Alps, and warbling under the shower or in the bath. <laughs> now, if you know J.I. Packer, he's he's not one to to uh, pick on people. He he's being serious that those are the sort of psychological phenomenon that that would produce that kind of thing. Um, so that that is what I believe tongues to have been. Um, but I'm also I'm open to correction and also open to teaching on that more if there's interest. But I think that's enough of an excursus on tongues for now. <clears throat> the point. Really here is tongues were given as a powerful sign of, of the verbal and spirit empowered um, nature of the Christian call to spread the gospel of, of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. Because we know it is the gospel together with the spirit that, that is the thing that transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. That, that's how one person at a time the gospel advances over the globe. Now, I often think of the missionary efforts as uh, uh, of Paul and, and the other apostles, but I got to wondering this week, how many people from Pentecost, from all these other areas, went home? You know, they're regenerate people. They couldn't shut up. They had to tell people about it. And so how many of these people went home and spread the gospel? God, I'm sure 3,000 souls we read at the end of Acts 2 were, were saved that day. They had to have gone back and preached the gospel. So God's using even the beginning here to the Jews at Jerusalem to spread his global kingdom. Several commentators warned against drawing too much of a connection between Pentecost and the events of Babel. Um, but it's interesting that nearly every one of them commented on it. <laughs> and I can't help but seeing some connection, so take it with a grain of salt. But th- th- there's that fateful day when man thought he'd reached the heavens by his own ingenuity, and God disrupted it, disrupted language. And then now, on this glorious day, where God reaches down and makes his own dwelling with man on his own accord, he, he unites people of, of multiple languages back into one household. I, I have to see some kind of contrast there. Now, whether or not Luke or the Spirit intended us to make that connection, that what, what is clear is that every tribe, nation, tongue, language under heaven will be bricks in God's temple. And praise the Lord, because that means me. That means you. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to love to look at, you know, the, the I think it's John 3.16 at the beginning of, of like the little Gideon Bibles in all the different languages. You know, looking at the Asian languages and the Mideastern languages are fascinating. But I would always look up the Dutch one, too, because that's my heritage. The Dutch, it, the gospel has been preached in Dutch for, for 500 plus years, you know, for, for a long time. It's been pre- being preached in English. Um, it, it's being preached in, in Chinese, you know. Um, that, that's the advance of the gospel. So I don't, I don't, I don't care um, how much Xi Jinping or the CCP in China want to stand out, stamp out Christianity there. Um, you know, they may succeed in stamping out any form of cultural Christianity, but they will never stamp out 
the proclamation of the gospel in Mandarin or in any other Chinese dialect. I mean, the gospel will be preached in Iraqi. It will be preached in Russian. It will be preached in the most incomprehensible of South, Southern American dialects. The nations may rage, but the gospel will never stop advancing until Jesus has built his house. So, no matter how we may be aligned as Christians, discredited, persecuted, hidden in a cultural corner, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because the word of God cannot be bound. I want to leave you with this thought that Paul... Um, the great apostle was, was locked in a Roman prison, writing his probably his last letter or his last letter that we have to, to Timothy. Um, and, and according to, to tradition, not far from getting his head chopped off, this Paul in prison writes to Timothy in chapter 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So here's the great apostle, the greatest missionary who ever lived, bound in chains in a Roman prison, what a threat to Christianity, right? He says, the word of God is not bound. It will never be bound. So our age is the age of the spread of the global kingdom of the son of David through the spirit-empowered proclamation of the unbound word of God. Uh, it's an amazing, it's the most glorious and exciting age of humanity to date. Tell glory. So enjoy it. Amen.